take the road up through the mystic mountains, past the fantastic fishing fields and fountains, three days through the titan woods whose trees glare down through leafy hoods, crawl in the darkness of the biting caves, it's more dangerous the other ways, then finally find yourself later or sooner in the hidden valley town, Ben Luna. In the market square, in front of the Stava church, in the middle of Ben Luna, there are many different stalls, each selling something unique, made with love and care by the stall's owners. All are different, but one thing many stalls have in common is a small set of metal scales, used to weigh products against a standard set of weights, made by Ben Luna's own blacksmiths and measured to the standard set in the city of Fridos. The scales represent an unspoken agreement. They are so accurate that some say larger cities use scales as a symbol of justice outside their courts. The fairness and trust that these simple instruments represent can be seen as a universal language spoken all over the world. A few days ago, Lillian Lausanne had found herself transfixed by a set of these scales, whilst her mother was buying oats at the market. The brass bowls reflected the summer sun and gave a satisfying clink as they hit the pewter stand, signifying that balance had been found. She had found the image entering her head several times in the days to follow, and each time it did, she found herself getting angry. Fairness, she would think. How could anyone believe in such a concept? Was it fair when rich children were born into rich families and poor children starved to death? Was it fair to be accused of a crime one didn't commit and be forced to serve the sentence? And was the world fair when disease killed a child? At these times she would curse the gods, all the high and mighty creatures on the Stava church walls looking down at mortals and tossing them aside like taken chess pieces. At no point did she feel this burning anger more strongly than in this moment. The moment when she was face to face with a mythical creature that her friend had so desperately wanted to see again. She felt an existential rage boil up from her belly, pushing away all the sadness that had been there only moments ago. And yet she could not look away for it was looking back at her. Against the backdrop of the forest floor, leaves the colour of burnt sugar crunching under its padded feet, stood an animal Lillian had never seen before. Two cat-like eyes cut through the gloom and stared at her, unblinking. It had a snout like a dog, but its ears were pointy. From this distance, Lillian could see its wet nostrils flaring as it drank in the evening's scent. Its fluffy tail flicked back and forth in wariness from the back of its soft coat. Its fur was a light brown, but as soon as Lillian registered this, it flicked and changed. One moment it was brown, then it shimmered 
into a mossy green, and then a flash of orange, and for the quickest instant it was as blue as the sky had been that morning. And it was big, easily as big as Orton's dog, Silky, although it had a more regal way of holding itself, less slobbery and floppy. Lillian's anger faded, replaced by wonder. She knew she ought to be scared, but she still felt too much sadness and anger. She found her breath again and began to slowly inhale as she shifted her weight to take a tentative step back. She heard a strange noise coming from the creature, which by now she knew had to be the fane hound that they had been looking for all this time. It sounded like purring, but more metallic and melodious. It wasn't an aggressive sound, she thought, but more like the sound animals make when they want to keep you at bay. If it had been a dog, thought Lillian, it would have been a low growl. Lillian took the hint and started to step back even further. She didn't want to. She wanted to run up to it, to touch it, to look at its fur, but life in the country growing up around the wild had taught her better than that. After four steps, the fanehound moved. It flattened its ears and stopped growling and crouched down close to the forest floor, at which point it promptly disappeared. Lillian stopped breathing once again. She was staring, unblinking at the spot where the fanehound had been, but she could no longer see it. She glanced left at a group of trees, then right at a small thicket, hoping to see movement. But she saw nothing. Had she imagined it? She blinked several times, hoping to will it back into existence. But the light was quickly fading from the forest, and the few thin streaks through the canopy from the setting sun were quickly disappearing. Lillian felt like she was trying to remember a dream upon waking. Every second that passed sent the fanehound deeper into obscurity. She turned to leave, to head back to Ben Luna the way she came. She hadn't gone twenty steps, however, when she paused again. With every step she took, she could have sworn she could hear another step, a second or even a third crunch in the leaves a few feet behind her. Lillian spun around, expecting to see the fanehound again, but there was nothing there. She turned back and started to walk again, keeping an ear out for what she'd thought she'd heard. This time, she was sure of it. With every step she took through the leaves, Lillian heard a corresponding crunch coming from directly behind her. Suddenly, Lillian remembered something. She fumbled around her pockets until she found the heavy coin. Her fingers touched the cold gold of the sovereign that had been given to her that night in the alley. She lifted it up to her eyeline and held it out a little to the left. The shine on the coin gave a slight reflection and Lillian was trying to spot anything strange happening behind her as she went. She had to walk quite a way, but once she'd shifted the coin enough, she found what she was looking for. Sure enough, with every step she took, the leaves a few feet behind her moved. If she stopped, they stopped. She was being followed, she thought, and then... Her heart began to race as her common sense came crashing through her amazement. Moments earlier she had been wandering through the forest, not paying attention to anything but her own thoughts, and when she had looked up, she had taken a strange and wild animal by surprise. Was it likely now that it was following her, or was it 
hunting her. Lillian instinctively quickened her pace. Her running made the already foggy mirror image become useless, so she shoved the coin back into her pocket and broke into a run. The wind in her ears and the quick crunch of leaves as well as the sound of branches being flicked back made it impossible to tell if the footsteps were still behind her. All Lillian knew as she ran was that with each step she took, she had not been caught. And so she continued. She ran back through the forest towards the river which she could now hear in the distance. Once she reached it, she splashed through it, slipping at one point and getting drenched. Once she had climbed back up the hill to her house, however, she did not stop. She didn't even give her kitchen window a second glance as she rushed past it, all the way up the path and on to Ben Luna's cobbled streets. By now, her legs were heavy with exhaustion and she was taking quick, gulping breaths. She narrowly avoided bumping into a cart and donkey as she crossed the town square. The animals' braying sounds echoed in the distance already as she ran up the top street into the Stepson house, its heavy wooden door already open to the breeze. By the time she climbed the last few steps up to Mr Atticop's attic room, cursing his ridiculous choice of lodging under her breath, she was almost ready to collapse. She did, in fact, fall briefly to the floor, trying desperately to catch her breath as she sat against the wall, peering through her sweat-stung eyes to see if Mr Atticop was even in the room. He was. He was staring bewildered at the damp and exhausted girl that had burst through his floor unapologetically. In his hand, he was holding a paperweight shaped like a spider, and Lillian saw that she had interrupted him about to place it in a trunk by his desk. This drew her attention to the rest of the room, and she saw that it was filled with half-empty boxes and bags. She turned her head to see various piles of clothes lying on the bed, some folded in neat piles. Mr Atskop was wearing a grey tunic and black, loose-fitting trousers, and seemed to be in the middle of packing up his belongings. "'My dear girl, please don't sit there. You're dripping on my hat.' Lillian looked down to see that she had almost crushed a luxurious black suede hat and that there was indeed water dripping from her smock onto the brass buttons around the hat's edge. She mumbled an apology and shifted herself away from it. "'What in Enoch's name has happened to you?' asked Mr Atkop as he went back to packing his belongings. Lillian wanted to answer, but between breaths she could only say a few words. "'What? What are you doing?' Mr. Atkop didn't look back at her. Instead, he spoke off-handedly while examining a book, wondering which box to put it in. I'm packing, of course. I did tell you I'd be leaving soon. Lillian was taken aback. Everything these last few days had been so clouded over by what happened to Kilda, she had forgotten that Mr. Atkop was leaving Ben Luna. She realised that she hadn't actually seen him since that night at Kilda's house. She pushed the memory out of her mind feeling a familiar lump appear in her throat at the very thought of it. Mr. Atagop looked up from packing. Lillian, I know these last few days have been difficult, but if you're going to go mad, I really wish you would tell me. Lillian shook her head and snapped her attention back to the matter at hand. Her pulse was slowing now and her head was clearing. I saw it. Saw what? said Mr. Atagop, throwing a few pages into a wastebasket. I saw the fane hound, the thing that me and Kil... The animal I told you about, the one whose fur we found, 
I saw it in the woods. Mr. Atkop slowly turned to look at her. He paused for a second and then walked over to where she was and sat down on the floor in front of her. Lillian almost giggled at how out of place he looked, sat cross-legged like a child playing with wooden soldiers. He wore a serious expression as he spoke. Tell me what happened, exactly. Lillian had finally managed to slow her breathing and began to tell him everything that had just happened. She even brought out her gold sovereign to show him how she had used its shiny surface to look behind her. Mr. Adcop listened patiently, barely changing his expression as she spoke. When she finally reached the part about arriving at the Stepson house, he took a deep breath and gazed at the clutter of his attic room. He seemed to be weighing what to say in his mind, ordering the words carefully, like packing precious things into a trunk. Lillian, he finally said, do you know the difference between an objective and a subjective truth? Lillian hadn't expected this as a response to her story. She raised her eyebrows, curious as to what this had to do with mythical disappearing dogs. No, she had heard the words before, but couldn't confidently say she knew their meanings. Mr. Atkop reached behind him and grabbed a glass vial, one of the ones he'd used in his many experiments. It was a similar size to the vials of essence Lillian had seen, but not as ornate. You see this, he said, holding it in front of himself. Neither you or I or anyone observing us would argue that this vial is not here. I can see it, I can touch it, I can smell what might have been inside it. He tossed the small object between his hands, as if really making sure it was indeed real. This vial being here with us now, that is an objective truth, meaning that it remains true for anyone and everyone, no matter who you are. With me so far? Lillian nodded. Good. Now, how this vial makes you feel, what it might remind you of, what it signifies to you, these things are all just as real as the vial itself, but they will be different for you and me. I have different memories or thoughts associated with this object compared to you. That is called a subjective truth. It is true, but only for me, just as your subjective truths are true only for you. Lillian still didn't understand what this had to do with anything. Mr. Atacop threw the small bottle carelessly into a pile of cloth rags, this experience you've just had, he continued, there is no doubt in my mind that you did indeed witness something, that you had some sort of supernatural encounter, but I believe that it would be classed as a subjective truth rather than an objective truth. Lillian began to understand, and she began to feel anger rise up inside her, of all the people she wanted to tell, she told Mr. Atacop first because she was sure he would believe her. You're saying it isn't real, but I saw it, just like I'm seeing you. I'm not saying that, he reassured. I do believe you saw something. All I'm saying is that had I been there too, I would not have seen anything. Because when I think about all the things that constitute an animal, I remember that the ability to disappear is not one of them. It's like when people see ghosts or have out-of-body experiences. They are true, but they are not objective truths. Lillian paused for a second. 
She shook her head in annoyance. So, magical moon water and, and, and secret assassins and demons, they're all real, but the animal I saw today was not. Mr. Adcock's eyes grew concerned. Lillian, considering what you've been through, it's not surprising that your mind would... Lillian cut him off. No, don't say that. Don't use what happened to Kilda to make me sound like I'm going mad. I know what I saw, and and if you don't believe me, then, well, I'll catch it. I'll stay in Ben Luna, and I'll catch it and prove it to you. Mr. Atacop stood up. I'm sorry, Lillian. I know this is frustrating. But as you can see, he gestured to the cluttered room. I'm rather busy. If you would like, this evening you and I can meet and discuss everything you've been through these last few days, and we can... We can say goodbye. This stopped Lillian's train of thought in its tracks. Goodbye, she said. What do you mean? Well, I plan to leave Ben Luna tomorrow, or the day after at the latest. If you would like to come with me, then that offer still stands. But I understand if you would rather stay here with your family. Either way, tonight you say goodbye, either to me or to Ben Luna. Lillian left the Stepson house with a million more questions than when she arrived. She wanted to continue her lessons with Mr. Atacop, but she had a lot of reasons to want to stay in Ben Luna. She could help Stina. She could help her parents. She could honour Kilda by trying to capture the Fainhound and prove its existence to the world. She could try and find out more about why Brother Thomas had that silver hand in his cupboard. She stopped suddenly in the market square. The setting sun was slowly turning the mountain behind her a beautiful peach colour, and the last few stallholders were packing up their wares. The silver hand. What with everything that had been happening these last few weeks, she had completely forgotten about it. She hadn't even asked Mr. Atacop. She considered turning back, but didn't fancy another lecture about how she was going mad. Instead, her eyes fell on the Starver Church its dark wood catching the pink light of the sky. How could something so beautiful hide a liar in its depths? Without even thinking, Lilia felt her feet move towards the church doors. What did she have to lose, she thought. Her best friend was dead. She might be leaving the town altogether. Sadness and anger drove her forward to confront Brother Thomas directly. She flung the bulky doors open as if she was about to confront the gods themselves. And why shouldn't she, she thought. They had taken her best friend and were refusing to provide her with answers. Their quiet images gazed down at her from the walls and tapestries as she marched into the main hall. She scowled at Kina, goddess of the seasons, in her form of a hare. The carving's blank black eyes stared back at her, indifferent. She stormed past a statue of Liebling, the goddess of goodness and fairness, Lillian stopped to look at the marble woman, posing with a doe in some flowers. Lillian used to love that statue, but now she wanted to push it off its plinth and watch it shatter. That would show her. Goddess of fairness, she thought. More like goddess of... Lillian? She snapped out of her spiteful trance to see Brother Thomas walking out of the back room, carrying a book. Lillian didn't know what to say. She thought that if she opened her mouth, she would start shouting or crying. So she just stood in front of Liebling, fists clenched and eyes glaring. Lillian, is everything all right? Brother Thomas's soft voice and compassionate manner didn't fool her anymore. She let him speak as he approached her, 
his voice echoing off the walls and tall ceiling. I did wonder if I might see you. Thank you again for helping with the service the other day. I know that must have been difficult. How are you holding up? Lillian said nothing. She continued to glare at him as she felt tears forcing their way into her eyes. Brother Thomas changed the subject. Ah, Liebling, yes. I suppose things don't seem very fair or good these days, do they? But you know, she can still be with us, even when things seem terrible. Do you know why she's often seen with a doe? Lillian finally snapped and cut him off. What was that silver hand? Excuse me? Brother Thomas looked genuinely confused. The silver hand brooch in the box. What is it? Where did you get it? And what does it mean? She had thrown off all caution. If she was going to leave Benluna, she would leave with answers or not at all. She studied Brother Thomas. His expression was fixed and quizzical. His words came out measured and careful. That was a gift. Many years ago, I was given it as thanks for Lillian cut him off with a shout. Enough! Her cry echoed around the hall for a long time. Brother Thomas's face remained calm, but Lillian saw his lips purse in anger. The two stared at each other. Lillian was not going to be intimidated, nor was she going to change the subject. Finally, Brother Thomas sighed and walked over to a wooden bench where he sat down. Lillian did not join him. She studied him as he sat. His face looked suddenly tired, as if he'd just set down a great weight. He looked back up at Lillian. I don't know why you want to know about that brooch. It seems as though you found out from someone or somewhere that it isn't just a pretty piece of jewellery. Gods know how. Truth be told, I should have thrown it away years ago. He took a deep breath and sighed. It probably comes as no surprise to you that I wasn't always a church brother. I grew up in Fridos, and I come from a very poor family. Being poor in the city isn't like being poor out here. There is no community there. You can't rely on friends or strangers to take care of you if you fall on hard times. Everyone is out for themselves, and those who fall behind get left behind. So, when you're born with nothing, you take what you can get. Growing up, I fell in with a group of people who were, let's say, less than friendly. I worked for them, and they gave me food and money in return. Good money, too. Anyway, cutting a long story short, I was once asked by someone outside the group to provide information on my boss. They offered me money, and they wore a silver hand on their breast. For several weeks I reported to them in secret and gave them information on raids or robberies that we were planning. I figured that it didn't matter where the money was coming from as long as it kept coming, and if I was careful, I could be a servant of two masters and earn double the salary. Well, that worked for a while. Luckily the group never found out, but they had their suspicions. Eventually, they were all arrested, even me, but I was released in secret. Anyway, from then on I worked for the Guiding Hand. That's what they call themselves. Who are they? asked Lillian. She had approached Brother Thomas by now, but still did not sit by him. 
They are a group of families, individuals, businesses, all sorts. Basically, rich people with nothing better to do than root out trouble and put a stop to it. They claim to stand against tyranny and guide society into prosperity through secrecy. They put a stop to tyranny if they see it, and they make sure the guilty are punished. Lillian was confused. They sound like good people, she said. Why did you leave? Brother Thomas looked back at the statue of Liebling and the doe. He smiled. That's one lesson the fables don't teach us, Lillian, but it's one of the most important ones. What? she asked. Everyone thinks they are a good person. The guiding hand were no different. I'm sure that amongst its many members there might even be some genuinely good people, but with every ounce of power it becomes easier to justify a terrible deed. Brother Thomas held his hands out in front of him, palms up as if holding invisible weights. Lillian watched as his right hand came down, bringing his left up to meet it in the middle. Brother Thomas continued. Power gives you the luxury of creating your own morality. I left the hand because I didn't agree with the means they used to justify their ends. Peace and justice are all very good, but if it comes at the cost of murder and blackmail, then, well, that's not the kind of peace I'd want to be a part of. Brother Thomas stood up with a sigh and walked past Lillian towards the church's back rooms. Lillian was left alone with the gods. She had answers now, but they had come with their own set of questions. She found herself looking towards a large tapestry depicting the Paderstone against the Benluna Peak. None of this would have happened if she hadn't decided to paint that silly toad, she thought. In the dim light of the hall, the great stone toad looked as if it might be smiling at her. Lillian turned when she heard Brother Thomas come back. He was holding something in his hands. Lillian saw it glint as it caught the candlelight. As he approached, he spoke softly. I left Fridos and joined the church because I was sick of having to justify bad things to myself each night as I tried to sleep. With these stories and this life to guide me, I know for sure that I can be a good person. He held out his hands and placed the object into Lillian's palm. Whatever you choose to do with this, remember, the roads to good and evil are oft made of the same stone. Lillian looked down and saw a shiny silver brooch in the shape of a hand resting in her palm. That evening, after Lillian had gone home to wash and change, she hid the brooch in her room among her belongings. She then sat down for dinner with her parents and told them that she would be leaving Ben Luna the next day. She had made the decision on her way back from the Starva church. In the back of her mind, though, she had always known that she would choose to leave. She loved Ben Luna, but the town was now heaped in painful reminders. She didn't want every path or tree she saw to remind her of Kilda. In a strange way, his death made leaving Ben Luna a little easier, as she didn't feel as though she was leaving him behind or going off on adventures without him. That would have felt strange somehow. She chatted with her parents over a delicious cheese and ham pie her father had cooked for dinner, and when they had finished, her parents helped her pack a few things into an old bag. Late in the evening, Lillian kept her promise to meet Mr. Atacop. She kept her wits about her on the walk, 
just in case the Fainhelm decided to conveniently show itself. The memories of the strange animal were already beginning to fade as they were mixed up with dark pasts and strange silver brooches. Her mind was on Cassandra the assassin as she stepped out of the tree line and into view of the pad of stone, where Mr. Atticop was already waiting for her. He smiled as she approached. It seems like years since I saw you that night, skulking around those bushes. Lillian grinned, remembering how scared and confused she had been the night the Padderstone had woken up. She'd grown up a lot since then, and found that after everything she'd been through in the last few months, leaving Ben Luna for two years might not be so scary. Have you thought about what I said? Mr. Atkop spoke softly as Lillian stood in front of him. She gazed past him, up at the Padderstone, its serene smile still visible in the light of the stars. It was a warmer and calmer night than when she had seen the lunar essence spill from its mouth and light up the pool below. Yes, she replied softly. I want to come with you. But you knew that already, didn't you? Mr. Atkop smiled again. Lillian thought she almost saw him laugh. Well, I wouldn't say I knew. Lillian rolled her eyes. Why did you want to meet here? she asked, looking around. Well, I thought that if you were going to say goodbye to me, this setting would provide a satisfactory sense of symmetry. And if you were going to say goodbye to Ben Luna, then somehow this place feels more like the spirit of the town rather than any of the actual buildings. Lillian remembered her encounter earlier that day in the Starva Church and nodded her head in agreement. Well, what time would you like to leave tomorrow? she asked. Mr. Atkop raised his eyebrows. Aren't you going to say goodbye? He gestured behind him to the stone and the mountain. Lillian snorted. He didn't expect her to actually say the words, did he? But then she paused. Why shouldn't she say them? This ancient statue was alive, sort of, and so it might be able to sort of appreciate it. She stepped past Mr. Atacop and gazed up at the great stone toad. She smiled and spoke softly, feeling a little self-conscious as she did. Goodbye, Padderstone, Gorakia, and goodbye, Ben Luna. Thank you for the food, the fun, the family, and the friends. She smiled and turned back to Mr. Atacop. How's that for satisfactory symmetry? She looked at Mr. Atacop, but he was standing still, gazing out over the pools in front of them. Hey, come on, she said, walking over to him. I thought that was pretty clever. She came to a stop when she saw Mr. Atacop's expression. His face was very still. His eyes were wide and fixed intensely ahead of him. Mr. Atacop? Lillian asked, starting to worry a little. Are you all right? Finally, after a few long and painful seconds, he spoke. What in all the names of all the gods is that? Lillian followed his gaze and peered into the darkness. She couldn't be sure of what she was looking for, but after a few scans of the trees and waters ahead, she saw them. A pair of large eyes were staring back at them through the gloom. Eyes like that of a cat.
Hello, hello. Thank you for listening to episode 10. Thank you for sticking with us all this way. I am Simon Maida, your reader and writer. The music was by Tom Figgins. Not much news this week, but I do want to urge listeners who have access to social media that have not yet followed us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. We are on all these platforms at Ben Luna Podcast, and we would love to hear from you. These are definitely the best ways to keep up to date with any news we might have. We are approaching the end of season one of Ben Luna. Next episode is the finale of season one. Uh, What this basically means is that I'm going to take some time off to finish writing season two. And then we'll be back up and running in no time. In the meantime, please do recommend us to your family and friends, as it would be great to have a whole new audience engaged by the time season two begins. Lots of love from us. And as always, thank you for listening.